Welcome to the 329th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Julia Claiborne Johnson, author of the novel Better Luck Next Time. And stay tuned for after the interview when we have a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Better Luck Next Time. Now stay tuned for my interview with Julia Claiborne Johnson. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen to audiobooks during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Reading and Writing Podcast Special Offer. Get two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership with code RWPODCAST. That's code RWPODCAST for two audiobooks for the price of one for your first month of membership at Libro.fm. Yeah. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Julia Claiborne Johnson, author of the new novel, Better Luck Next Time. Julia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Great. Well, if someone hasn't heard about yet about your new book, Better Luck, Luck Next Time, how would you describe the novel? Oh, it's uh, set on a divorce ranch in uh, Reno, Nevada in 1938. It's told in, in flashback by a retired doctor who lives in a home, in a retirement home. And the reason I wrote it, which may not be what you want are asking me right now, but the reason I wrote it is in real life, my father was a very handsome man and he was born in 1916. So he would, you know, is long dead. But in real life, he had that job. He was a fake cowboy on a divorce ranch outside Reno. And they would, they were just like eye candy. They were essentially the chorus girls there for the ladies to look at and be cheered up by. And I always, and when I grew up and thought, Oh, most people's fathers did not have this job. <laughs> I thought, Oh, well, that might be kind of a fun thing to write a book about. And my mother was a doctor. So like I sort of squeezed the two of them together to make the character. So did that answer your question? I'm not sure. Yeah. So, so, so what is a divorce camp? So what happened was I can talk about this forever, but I won't, but to be succinct, the way to get a quickie divorce at that time in the 1930s was you would move to Reno for six weeks, then you would become a legal residence and they could grant you a divorce. And you would say, Oh, I'm going to stay in Nevada forever as on your way to the, as you walked to the train station to blow town. So it was uh so it was what land. It was convenient to California, so by train, so and the whole country really. So people came from all over, and a lot of movie stars got their divorces there, and it was kind of the thing. And in 1937, it was on the cover of Life magazine. This this phenomena, and yet now it seems like people have completely forgot about it, which is just crazy. So, and did, so did you have this idea for this novel? It sounds like for a, for a while that you you I had this kind of in the back of your mind. Time. And what's unfortunate is like back when um, I could have asked my father's questions about it, I wasn't that interested in it. And he used to tell funny, a couple of funny stories about it, but he never really talked about it much. 
So I didn't really know that much. So I went to Reno and spent a week there and like went to the historical society and did all kinds of things to try to find some, you know, vestige of his time there and didn't really find anything. So I don't know where he worked or for how long, but that was an excellent thing, Jeff, because then I could make everything up. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the, the, the fact of it is true, but like the name of the ranch is made up where it is, is made up all the people. Cause when you write books, if, if you set it in a real place and it, it, people will say, well, you know, they didn't have a push door. They had a revolving door, you know, and I just was like, yeah. well, I'm free of all that. So. So I read in your bio that you grew up on a farm in Tennessee and moved to New York city to work in the magazine industry as yes. a Southerner myself who lived in New York for eight years. I'm curious about your original move to New York. What, what brought you to the city? <laughs> It wasn't straight from the farm. Like I grew up on a horse <laughs> farm and which also helped for this book because it's on a ranch. And so like all of my extensive horse knowledge I had, but anyway, um, I went to, to school in Virginia and then I, it's like you, I slowly crept North. And then I went to graduate school for a year in um, Boston. And then uh, I moved to New York because clearly, you know, at 21, I was going to be a famous writer pretty much right away. <laughs> I didn't write a novel. I never tried to write a novel until I was 50. So, you know, there was some time needed for germination. But when I, I, one of my friends from graduate school worked at Mademoiselle Magazine and she knew the fiction editor needed an assistant. So she called me and I came and interviewed. And she hired me. And I think about what I had on that day still and think, oh, my God, why did she hire me? But it worked (laughs) out. And it was a good lesson for me as a writer because she I had to find I had to read the 10,000 manuscripts that got submitted to us every year to try to find 12. And it was really hard to find 12. So it taught me a lot of valuable lessons about you better have a good story to tell. Beautiful sentences aren't going to that don't amount to hill of beans. No, thank you. And a lot of stuff like that. So, and my first book was dedicated to the fiction editor because I loved her so much. And so what was your, what were your other roles in the magazine industry? I mean, did you move on from Mademoiselle at some point? Uh, Well, yeah, I went to Good Housekeeping, which my friends who went to college with me found hilarious because there's (laughs) no worse housekeeper. I'm better now because I'm a grown up, but you know, I was a slob in my youth. And then I went to um, Glamour magazine and then once I went to work at Glam, I was a writer at Glamour. And then once I went to Glamour, Mademoiselle had to have me back. So then they hired me to come back as a writer there. And I used to write fashion and beauty copy, which was also hilarious because all the fashion and beauty writers looked like we had fallen into our closets in the dark and just rolled <laughs> out and whatever stuck to us. And we didn't wear any makeup. And you could tell the fashion and beauty people felt sorry for us because, you know, we were such nice girls. But, but <laughs> and they were often a little inarticulate. So they'd have to come explain the fashion stories to us. And we'd be, I'd be sitting there going, man, look at you. You look amazing. You, you know, British accent, everything. You're just, wow. You haven't made any sense in the past 10 minutes. So it made me, <laughs> what was valuable about it, Jeff, is it made me appreciate different kinds of genius because they were visually brilliant. And, you know, when you're in school, academic smarts get you the kudos. And so, I really never understood until then all the different ways people can be brilliant. So that was super, very helpful. And how did that experience in working and writing for those magazines, how did that experience prepare you later for writing novels? 
Well, what was good about it was it taught me that you had, after I left uh, Mademoiselle the second time, I was a freelancer for a lot of years. I used to write for Martha Stewart Living, like from the beginning and a bunch of other magazines. And it taught me that how to focus, how to see the story within the, the, what your information and also to turn it around. Because if you couldn't write fast enough, you would starve to death. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like people will give me a tight deadline. I'm like, oh, that's no problem. Apparently, this does not hold true from novel blah, novel writing because it took me five years to write my first novel and three years to write this one. But if you need me to do some promo stuff or anything or write a letter to somebody, it's there yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so are there writers or authors that inspired you as you started writing that first novel and then this novel? Oh, yeah. Oh, man, man I'll tell you what. I had a list of... Uh, Oh, where is it? It, used to, it was a post-it note, but it was stuck to my cabinet, but it's fallen off. Um, uh, one of my favorite books, you might have never read, it's called uh, I Capture the Castle. It's by Dodie Smith. Oh, well, let me back up some. So when I was at school in Boston, I was taught writing by a guy named uh, Richard Yates, who wrote Revolutionary Road and mm-hmm. a bunch of other books. And um, there's a man out here who he, inv- he invented, it's not the right word, he created madman and i met him at a party and he was so dazzled that i'd been taught by richard yates so i was like oh man yeah i should read those books again because i'd read them since i was in my 20s and so when i went to to look them up there was a biography of him and so i got the biography and in the biography it said um well there were a couple of interesting things the the one thing was like when Mr. Yates taught me, I thought he was in his seventies, but as it turns out, living on cigarettes and whiskey is really not the preservative that you would think. So when I was reading the biography, <laughs> I realized that at the time I was reading it, I was older than he, in my fifties, I was older than he was when he taught me, but he oh just lived hard. So, but when he was, he was a brilliant writer. And when he was 14 or so, he decided he wanted to be a writer. So he took the great Gatsby and he, he typed the whole thing just so he could internalize the rhythms of a novel. And I was like, Oh my God, that's such a great idea. So I took three of my favorite books and I didn't do the exact same thing because I didn't want to type that much, but I had a notebook and I just wrote down everything that happened on every page so that I could start to recognize the patterns. And it was really helpful. So the three books I did were um, my favorite book at that time was a, uh, Bell Canto by Ann Patchett. So I did that one. I did I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith, who only wrote one novel, but it's so good. And she's the woman who wrote 101 Dalmatians. So she wrote this one novel that would be YA now, I guess. But, you know, it was it's a terrific book. And then the other one, I had a neighbor across the street then who taught school. And she said, I need you to read this novel so you can talk to me about it because it seems good to me. And it was Hunger Games, the first one. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever read the Hunger Games. I have, I have. Okay, the first one, it's terrific. It's tight as a drum. Like I Google stalked the woman afterwards because there were no wasted words. Every chapter was about 10 pages long. They ended on cliffhangers and began on cliffhangers. So you'd look at it and you'd go, okay, it's midnight. I need to go to sleep. But, you know, the next chapter is only 10 10 pages long. So I'm going to read that one too. And then you'd read the whole book and go to sleep at like five in the morning or whatever time. So I thought that was a really good lesson. So I tried to use that in my writing. So when I have, when I'm working on a book, I have, you would laugh if you could see it. I, I don't have it up anymore, but for each book I have up a, a, a very intricate 
uh, assemblage of post-it notes. And it's like each chapter boiled down. And then there's the first line of each chapter and the last line of each chapter. So I can look at the lines and go, is this going to make me want to keep going? So, and then I have like, my husband's a TV writer. And so he, he calls them sequences. So like, and you know, how in a book, there'll be like things that happen over the course of many chapters. That's what he called mm-hmm. the sequences. So this last book was like, I don't know, maybe 25 page uh, chapters long, but there were seven sequences in it. So I have like the chapter boiled down, then the chapter boiled down to one sentence, the first sentence, the last sentence, the sequences, because I can't plan in advance, but I, I'm a, I keep track of it so I can make right. sure that everything is hanging together. That was not the answer to the question you asked, but it's the answer I gave you. No, no. So you, 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 so you talked about your, your career as a freelance writer and before that uh-huh. um, on staff at magazines. So, so what made you decide to start working on your first novel? I will tell you. We moved to um, California. My husband um, was a TV writer, and he wrote on a very fun show called Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> in New York. (laughs) And, um, you know, anyway, so that ended, that show ended. And then he got a job working for a show out here in Los Angeles called uh, news radio, which was a terrific show. Um, and that, you know, that had some tragic turns that it it came to an end. So then he went to work at Frasier. I'm telling you more too much again, but, um, and if you think about it, the, the characters in Frasier and Beavis and Butthead are kind of the same. It's like two idiots <laughs> our, and two brilliant people who are also idiots. So anyway, that's how I ended up here. And when we moved out here, I'd been trying to have a baby for years and I got pregnant the first day we lived here. So suddenly I was thrown into another phase of my life and my children, I don't know if you know this, I hate to break this to you if you haven't had children yet, but children, they do not raise themselves. <laughs> no, I, I have two. I, I'm, I'm yes. familiar with that. You would think, but no, attention must be paid because my parents were like super busy and it was a different time. Like my mother mm-hmm. was always at the hospital. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yep. And my father had no intention of you know, raising us, so we were kind of raised by wolves and like the, <laughs> in the outdoors and the farm, and we turned out okay. But as it turns out, that's not a good plan. So I was raising my kids and then um, my daughter had to read To Kill a Mockingbird for school. So I bought her a copy of it, which she immediately lost. So then I bought another one. So the first one would turn up, which it did. So then we had two copies. So I was like, well, you know, I haven't read this since I was 13. So I'm going to read it and we'll have this beautiful sharing mother-daughter chit-chat about it after. And that did not happen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but because I read it now as a grown up, I was in my 50s then. Um, I was like, oh, Boo Radley must be on the autism spectrum. And then my ne- very next thought, because I had kids, was, well, it's a lot easier to write that character than it is to raise him. And I thought, well, you know, that would be kind of a good book. You know what? I'm going to try to write that book. 
and like blithely sat down at my computer and started writing. And I wrote it in secret. I mean, I wasn't going to say to people, oh, I'm writing a novel. Because, I mean, at least it was in New York. In New York, everybody's writing a novel. But out here, it's a screenplay. But anyway, I didn't tell anybody. I finished it five years later because I couldn't work on it while the kids were in school. I mean, weren't in school. But And I was driving them around all over the place. But um, when I finished it, it was 11 o'clock at night. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to write Ann Patchett's agent a letter and tell her about my book. And she's going to be so excited. And she's going to take me. And because I had worked in a fiction department at Mademoiselle, I thought, well, it'll be six months before I ever hear from her, if I ever do. And that'll give me time to, to revise it. And so I sent the letter off. I went to bed. I got up at six the next morning to get the kids ready for school. And she had written me back already. And she is my agent. There's more to the story, but that's the Reader's Digest. Wow. That's a great great. story. It was a really, I mean, I could go on, but I'll try not to. (laughs) (laughs) So are you you working on another novel now? uh, 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 Maybe. I can't. You know how it is in the beginning. It's hard to tell. So, I mean, I feel that way every time. So, (laughs) don't it? Yeah, that's a a really depressing (laughs) question to ask somebody unless it is already in and edited so sure sure so uh, given your given your success with uh your two novels now what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels i have excellent advice it's very valuable um one is i would when i was trying to teach myself how to write a novel i read a bunch of novels and which is helpful. But um, I said to myself, I'd say to myself sometimes, this is a terrible novel. How did this novel ever get published? And then one day I went, oh, wait a minute. I know how it got published. They finished it. So (laughs) step one, finish it. And also it has been my experience that the people who talk about the novels they're going to write tend to not ever write them. So you need to just put your head down and do it. And I really think, Jeff, that the, what separates a sheep from the ghost goats or the ghosts um, is that the ability to pick yourself up and keep going. Because for this second book, I wrote three versions of it because the first version, and it was half a book both times. The first version, um, my first book was in first person. So I thought, well, I'll write this one in third person just to be different. And so I wrote half of it and I turned it in and my editor was like, ah, I don't know. I mean, uh, you're all voice and throwaway jokes. And this is like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> okay. And so I just started again and I started again and I sent in half of it again. And she said, I love the prologue. I hate the rest of it. <laughs> and so I was like, Oh my God, but I love the prologue and hated the rest of it. So she was not wrong, but there are a lot of people at that first setback or the second setback would just give up. So I think the real, the key to success is perseverance or grit or whatever you want to call it. Like if you don't finish it, it's never going to get published and you can't give up. So, and I have friends who've written like, you know, 10 books before they sold one. So you just have to stick with it. That's great. So what fiction or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh my God, I can tell you. I don't know if you went through this, but for the first few months of the of the lockdown, I really could not read. I just couldn't focus on anything. 
And then I read a book called um, The Pull of the Stars by Emma Donahue, who wrote Room. And it's, oddly enough, it's set in, a, in a, it came out this summer, and it's set in a, in a maternity ward in a hospital during the Spanish flu, which was the last pandemic. And it seems like it would be grim, but it was kind of joyful and fabulous, and I loved it. And it cracked me open again. So then I've read a lot of books. I read that. I read The Cold Millions was the last book I read. That's super good. And it kind of weirdly reminded me of my book, even though like his is the the down and out version of the depression and mine is the fizzy <laughs> kind of one. But it's, there's, <laughs> there's, there's similarities that are weird in it to me. And there's, I read, uh, oh, I love Transcendent Kingdom. Have you read that? That's I have not. Good. It's really good. And I read, uh, there are a ton I've read. I read, uh, I can't think off the top of my head. I should have made a list before I sat down. But um, anyway, oh, well, I leave the world behind. That was really good. But that cuts a little close to the bone because it's in a dystopia. Yeah. So um, anyway. So where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your books? Uh, they can go on to Facebook because I have an author Facebook page, which is my name, Julia Claiborne Johnson. It might be Julia Claiborne J. I'm not sure. Because I can't get it together enough to do a web page. And then I have a Twitter thing, and uh, which is also, I know that's Julia Claiborne J, as is Instagram. So, and, you know, they sell the books in the stores. That's what's mind-blowing. You walk into a bookstore across our nation, <laughs> and they're about to <laughs> be. And, you know, the um, fun thing is when, you know, I had gone through a dark period right before I wrote this book, and then it came out, and I was really nervous about it. And my my my. HarperCollins people said, oh, you're going to love this because people are going to be excited to see you. And you'd walk into places and they know who you were and their faces would light up. And I was like, oh, my God, this is what it's like to be prom queen. I don't have to say a mumbling word. People just look at me and they get excited. (laughs) (laughs) That was the greatest thing ever. So So. do you remember what was what was your experience or do, do you remember the first time that you saw your first novel in a bookstore? When was the first time? I know. Oh, well, this is not the first time, but it's funny. Um, I was doing an event in Portland at a bookstore called Annie Bloom's Books, and they had a big window display, you know, uh, with pictures of the book, not of me, but like lots of books and a big, you know, poster and stuff. And these two ladies, or maybe three, were standing out front talking about it. And I came up to them. I said, have you heard anything about this book? Is it any good? And they're like, oh, it's wonderful. And I said, great, because I wrote it. <laughs> and the was like, that could have gone very wrong for you. But, but you know, booksellers are the greatest. And like, they're, when my book launch happens, which is January 6th, they're having four, because it has to be COVID, they're having four um, bookstores across our nation host it. So that's kind of fun. That's that's great. It kind of reminds me of a story that Stephen King told one time. The first time he ever saw a stranger reading one of his books, he was on an airplane mm-hmm. flight, mm-hmm. and he went up to her and he excitedly said, "What do you think of that book?" And she said, "It's crap." <laughs> yes, I've never seen anybody reading it yet, and I think that would be just so fun. And even when I worked in magazines, I used to like people would be reading a magazine, and I had stuff in it, and I'd watch and turn pages and be like, "Oh no, just stop, just keep going." They just words. Just flip right on past them. Go right to the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with 
Julia Claiborne Johnson, author of the new novel, Better Luck Next Time. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Julia, thanks for doing this interview. Oh, you're so welcome, Jeff. It was fun to talk to you. Great. This was fun. Now stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Better Luck Next Time by Julia Claiborne Johnson, narrated by David Aaron Baker, available wherever audiobooks are sold. Tennessee, 1988. Yes, you've come to the right place. Dr. Howard Stovall Bennett III, at your service. Hand me that magnifying glass, will you, and I'll have a look at what you've got there. That's me, all right, the tall one in the beat-up Stetson, surrounded by all the ladies. When I first got that hat, I had to run it over with the ranch's station wagon so it didn't look too new. I must have been, let me see now, 24, 25 years old. Hard to believe I was ever that young. I was flat broke, but I was pretty then, and jobs were hard to come by during the Depression. If someone offered me one, I took it. Working on a dude ranch outside Reno that catered to the divorce trade beat the heck out of digging ditches, I can tell you that. Some men are born gigolos. Others have it thrust upon them. That's a little joke I always told myself in later years, when a nurse or one of my fellow doctors noted the excellence of my bedside manner. Some knuckleheads seem to think bedside manner can't be taught. Hogwash. Anybody with a lick of sense and a little compassion can pick up the essentials. Make eye contact. Let the person hurting tell you what pains them. And for heaven's sake, if you have cold hands, run them under hot water or rub your palms together before you start examining a patient. Of course, I'm joking when I say that. A gigolo? Far from it. The cowboys at the Flying Leap were there to look at not to touch. Fraternization with our guests was, in fact, grounds for getting yourself fired. We were on hand to do chores around the ranch, of course, but mostly we were hired to squire rich, broken-hearted ladies around Reno, hold their purses while they shopped, and lead them on trail rides through the high desert. We chatted with them about the weather, offered a sympathetic ear when they wanted to talk about their troubles told them they looked good when they needed to hear it most. All excellent training for a career in medicine, if you ask me. So sure, pull up a chair. I'd be happy to tell you what I know. No, I don't mind if you record our conversation. This will be a treat for me, particularly after all these years. I learned long ago not to talk about my cowboy past because people have such lurid tabloid sensibilities that... It was hard to make anybody understand what that job was like. Well, I'm as bad as anybody, I guess, making light of something I have no business making jokes about. It was serious work, taking care of our ladies during such a painful time in their lives. I think I learned more about the subtleties of suffering and the milk of human kindness working on the ranch than I did in all the years that came after. I wouldn't take anything for that experience. Let's see if I can identify the other characters in this photograph for you. First and last names? Well, I'll try. Uh, here's the other cowboy who worked alongside me, Sam. 
He favors Gary Cooper in High Noon, don't you think? What? You've never seen it? Well, you're missing out. It's a good one. Was on the late show just last week. I stayed up half the night watching it. An upside of retirement, knowing nobody needs you to be anywhere that matters in the morning. Nobody cares anymore. Sam's last name was Vittori, that I know. Now, this gentleman in the sharp-looking suit, that's Max, Maxwell Gregory. Used to be some kind of businessman in Chicago. Came to Reno looking for fresh air and investment opportunities and a way out of the big bad city. Margaret here, with the curly black hair and Shirley Temple dimples, his partner in business and in life. Ran the house, kept the books, dispensed wisdom. She'd read about divorce ranches in a movie magazine, as I remember, and convinced Max to buy a washed-up cattle ranch and set up shop. The idea of busting out of failed marriages and starting fresh was more or less a new idea then, you see. And Reno was the place to do it. After six weeks hand-running of residency there, our guests were legally unhitched by the great state of Nevada. Free to roll the dice again if they so desired. 